Chapter Twelve, Part One of the Life of Cicero, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Philippa Jevons. The Life of Cicero, Volume One by Anthony Trollope. Chapter Twelve: His Exile, Part One. We now come to that period of Cicero's life in which, by common consent of all who have hitherto written of him, he is supposed to have shown himself as least worthy of his high name. Middleton, who certainly loved his hero's memory and was always anxious to do him justice, condemns him. It cannot be denied that in this calamity of his exile he did not behave himself with that firmness which might reasonably be expected from one who had borne so glorious a part in the Republic. Morabin, the French biographer, speaks of the wailings of his grief, of its injustice and its follies. Cicéron était trop plein de son malheur pour donner un trait de nouvelle espérance, he says. Il avait supporté ce malheur avec peu de courage, says another Frenchman, Monsieur de Rosoir, in introducing us to the speeches which Cicero made on his return. Dean Merivale declares that he marred the grace of the concession in the eyes of posterity, alluding to the concession made to the popular feeling by his voluntary departure from Rome, as will hereafter be described, by the unmanly lamentations with which he accompanied it. Momsen, with a want of insight into character wonderful in an author who has so closely studied the history of the period, speaks of his exile as a punishment inflicted on a man notoriously timid and belonging to the class of political weathercocks. We now come, says Mr. Forsyth, to the most melancholy period of Cicero's life, melancholy not so much from its nature and the extent of the misfortunes which overtook him, as from the abject prostration of mind into which he was thrown. Mr. Froude, as might be expected, uses language stronger than that of others, and tells us that he retired to Macedonia to pour out his sorrows and his resentments in lamentations unworthy of a woman. We have to admit that modern historians and biographers have been united in accusing Cicero of want of manliness during his exile. I propose, not, indeed, to wash the blackamoor white, but to show, if I can, that he was as white as others might be expected to have been in similar circumstances. We are, I think, somewhat proud of the courage shown by public men of our country who have suffered, either justly or unjustly, under the laws— our annals are bloody, and many such have had to meet their death. They have done so generally with becoming manliness. Even though they may have been rebels against the powers of the day, their memories have been made green because they have fallen like brave men. Sir Thomas More, who was no rebel, died well and crowned a good life by his manner of leaving it. Thomas Cromwell submitted to the axe without a complaint. Lady Jane Grey, when on the scaffold, yielded nothing in manliness to the others. Cranmer and the martyr bishops perished nobly. The Earl of Essex and Raleigh and Strafford and Strafford's master showed no fear when the fatal moment came. In regarding the fate of each, we sympathise with the victim because of a certain dignity at the moment of death. But there is, I think, no crisis of life in which it is so easy for a man to carry himself honourably as that in which he has to leave it, when it summa dies et ineluctabile tempus. No doubting now can be of avail. No moment is left for the display of conduct beyond this, which requires only decorum and a free use of the pulses to become in some degree glorious. 
the wretch from the lowest dregs of the people can achieve it with a halter round his neck. Cicero had that moment also to face, and when it came he was as brave as the best Englishman of them all. But of those I have named, no one had an Atticus to whom it had been the privilege of his life to open his very soul, in language so charming as to make it worth posterity's while to read it, to study it, to sift it, and to criticise it. Wolsey made many plaints in his misery, but they have reached us in such forms of grace that they do not disparage him. But then he too had no Atticus. Shaftesbury and Bolingbroke were dismissed ministers and doomed to live in exile the latter for many years, and felt no doubt strongly their removal from the glare of public life to obscurity. We hear no complaint from them which can justify some future critic in saying that their wails were unworthy of a woman, but neither of them was capable of telling an Atticus the thoughts of his mind as they rose. What other public man ever had an Atticus, to whom, in the sorrows which the ingratitude of friends had brought upon him, he could disclose every throb of his heart? I think that we are often at a loss, in our efforts at appreciation of character, and in the expressions of our opinion respecting it, to realise the meaning of courage and manliness. That sententious Swedish queen, one of whose foolish maxims I have quoted, has said that Cicero, though a coward, was capable of great actions, because she did not know what a coward was. To doubt, to tremble with anxiety, to vacillate hither and thither between this course and the other as to which may be the better, to complain within one's own breast that this or that thing has been an injustice, to hesitate within oneself, not quite knowing which way honour may require us to go, to be indignant even at fancied wrongs, to rise in wrath against another, and then, before the hour has passed, to turn that wrath against oneself. That is not to be a coward. To know what duty requires, and then to be deterred by fear of results, that is to be a coward. But the man of many scruples may be the greatest hero of them all. Let the law of things be declared clearly, so that the doubting mind shall no longer doubt, so that scruples may be laid at rest, so that the sense of justice may be satisfied, and he of whom I speak shall be ready to meet the world in arms against him. There are men, very useful in their way, who shall never doubt at all, but shall be ready, as the bull is ready, to encounter any obstacles that there may be before them. I will not say but that for the coarse purposes of the world they may not be the most efficacious, but I will not admit that they are therefore the bravest. The bull, who has no imagination to tell him what the obstacle may do to him, is not brave. He is brave, who, fully understanding the potentiality of the obstacle, shall, for a sufficient purpose, move against it. This Cicero always did. He braved the murderous anger of Sulla, when, as a young man, he thought it well to stop the greed of Sulla's minions. He trusted himself amid the dangers prepared for him, when it was necessary that with extraordinary speed he should get together the evidence needed for the prosecution of Verres. He was firm against all that Catiline attempted for his destruction, and had courage enough for the responsibility when he thought it expedient to doom the friends of Catiline to death. In defending Milo, whether the cause were good or bad, he did not blench. He joined the Republican army in Macedonia, though he distrusted Pompey and his companions. 
when he thought that there was a hope for the Republic, he sprung at Antony with all the courage of a tigress protecting her young, and when all had failed and was rotten around him, when the Republic had so fallen that he knew it to be gone, then he was able to give his neck to the swordsman, with all the apparent indifference of life which was displayed by those countrymen of our own whom I have named. But why did he write so piteously when he was driven into exile? Why, at any rate, did he turn upon his chosen friend, and scold him as though that friend had not done enough for friendship? Why did he talk of suicide as though by that he might find the easiest way of escape? I hold it to be natural that a man should wail to himself under a sense, not simply of misfortune, but of misfortune coming to him from the injustice of others, and specially from the ingratitude of friends. Afflictions which come to us from natural causes, such as sickness and physical pain, or from some chance, such as the loss of our money by the breaking of a bank, an heroic man will bear without even inward complainings. But a sense of wrong done to him by friends will stir him, not by the misery inflicted, but because of the injustice. And that which he says to himself, he will say to his wife, if his wife be to him a second self, or to his friend, if he have one so dear to him. The testimony by which the writers I have named have been led to treat Cicero so severely has been found in the letters which he wrote during his exile, and of these letters all but one were addressed either to Atticus, or to his wife, or to his brother. Twenty-seven of them were to Atticus. Before he accepted a voluntary exile as the best solution of the difficulty in which he was placed, for it was voluntary at first, as will be seen, he applied to the consul Piso for aid, and for the same purpose visited Pompey. So far he was a suppliant, but this he did in conformity with Roman usage. In asking favour of a man in power there was held to be no disgrace, even though the favour asked were one improper to be granted, which was not the case with Cicero. And he went about the forum in mourning, sordidatus, as was the custom with men on their trial. We cannot doubt that in each of these cases he acted with the advice of his friends, his conduct and his words after his return from exile betray exultation rather than despondency. It is from the letters which he wrote to Atticus that he has been judged, from words boiling with indignation that such a one as he should have been surrendered by the Rome that he had saved, by those friends to whom he had been so true, to be trampled on by such a one as Clodius. When a man has written words intended for the public ear, it is fair that he should bear the brunt of them, be it what it may, he has intended them for public effect, and if they are used against him, he should not complain. But here the secret murmurings of the man's soul were sent forth to his choicest friend, with no idea that from them would he be judged, by the historians to come in six hundred years, of whose good word he thought so much. Quidvero historiae de nobis ad annos sescenti praedicarint, he says to Atticus. How is it that from them, after two thousand years, the Merivales, Momsons, and Frudes condemn their great brother in letters, whose lightest utterances have been found worthy of so long a life? Is there not an injustice in falling upon a man's private words, words when written intended only for privacy, and making them the basis of an accusation in which an illustrious man shall be arraigned for ever as a coward? It is said that he was unjust even to Atticus, accusing even Atticus of lukewarmness. 
What if he did so for an hour? Is that an affair of ours? Did Atticus quarrel with him? Let any reader of these words who has lived long enough to have an old friend ask himself whether there has never been a moment of anger in his heart, of anger of which he has soon learned to recognise the injustice. He may not have written his angel, but then perhaps he has not had the pen of a Cicero. Let those who rebuke the unmanliness of Cicero's wailings remember what were his sufferings. The story has yet to be told, but I may in rough words describe their nature. Everything was to be taken from him. All that he had, his houses, his books, his pleasant gardens, his busts and pictures, his wide retinue of slaves, and possessions lordly as are those of our dukes and earls. He was driven out from Italy, and so driven that no place of delight could be open to him. Sicily, where he had friends, and Athens, where he might have lived, were closed against him. He had to look where to live, and did live for a while on money borrowed from his friends. All the cherished occupations of his life were over for him. The law courts, the forum, the senate, and the crowded meetings of Roman citizens hanging on his words. The circumstances of his exile separated him from his wife and children, so that he was alone. All this was assured to him for life, as far as Roman law could assure it. Let us think of the condition of some great and serviceable Englishman in similar circumstances. Let us suppose that Sir Robert Peel had been impeached and forced by some iniquitous sentence to live beyond the pale of civilization, that the houses at Whitehall Gardens and at Drayton had been confiscated, dismantled and levelled to the ground, and his rents and revenues made over to his enemies, that everything should have been done to destroy him by the country he had served, except the act of taking away that life which would thus have been made a burden to him. Would not his case have been more piteous, a source of more righteous indignation than that even of the Moors or Raleigh's? He suffered under invectives in the House of Commons, and we sympathise with him. But if some Clodius of the day could have done this to him, should we have thought the worse of him had he opened his wounds to his wife, or to his brother, or to his friend of friends? Had Cicero put an end to his life in his exile, as he thought of doing, he would have been a second Cato to admiring posterity, and some Lucan with rolling verses would have told us narratives of his valour. The judges of to-day look back to his half-formed purposes in this direction as being an added evidence of the weakness of the man. But had he let himself blood and have perished in his bath, he would have been thought to have escaped from life as honourably as did Junius Brutus. It is because he dared to live on that we are taught to think so little of him, because he had antedated Christianity so far as to feel when the moment came that such an escape was in truth unmanly. He doubted, and when the deed had not been done he expressed regret that he had allowed himself to live. But he did not do it, as Cato would have done, or Brutus. It may be as well here to combat, in as few words as possible, the assertions which have been made that Cicero, having begun life as a democrat, discarded his colours as soon as he had received from the people those honours for which he had sought popularity. They who have said so have taken their idea from the fact that, in much of his early forensic work, he spoke against the aristocratic party. He attacked Sulla through his favourite Chrysogonus, in his defence of Roscius Amerinus. He afterward defended a woman of Aretium in the spirit of antagonism to Sulla. 
His accusation of Verres was made on the same side in politics, and was carried on in opposition to Hortensius and the oligarchs. He defended the tribune, Caius Cornelius. Then, when he became consul, he devoted himself to the destruction of Catiline, who was joined with many, perhaps with Caesar's sympathy, in the conspiracy for the overthrow of the Republic. Caesar soon became the leader of the democracy, became rather what Mommsen describes as democracy itself, and as Cicero had defended the Senate from Catiline, and had refused to attach himself to Caesar, he is supposed to have turned from the political ideas of his youth, and to have become a conservative, when conservative ideas suited his ambition. I will not accept the excuse put forward on his behalf, that the early speeches were made on the side of democracy because the exigencies of the occasion required him to so devote his energies as an advocate. No doubt he was an advocate, as are our barristers of today, and as an advocate supported this side or that. But we shall be wrong if we suppose that the Roman Patronus supplied his services under such inducements. With us a man goes into the profession of the law with the intention of making money, and takes the cases right and left, unless there be special circumstances which may debar him from doing so with honour. It is a point of etiquette with him to give his assistance, in turn, as he may be called on, so much so that leading men are not unfrequently employed on one side, simply that they may not be employed on the other side. It should not be urged on the part of Cicero that, so actuated, he defended Amarinus, a case in which he took part against the aristocrats or defended Publius Sulla, in doing which he appeared on the side of the aristocracy. Such a defence of his conduct would be misleading, and might be confuted. It would be confuted by those who suppose him to have been notoriously a political trimmer, as Mommsen has called him, or a deserter, as he was described by Dio Cassius and by the pseudo-Sallust, by showing that in fact he took up causes under the influence of strong personal motives such as rarely govern an English barrister. These motives were in many cases partly political, but they operated in such a manner as to give no guide to his political views. In defending Sulla's nephew he was moved as far as we know solely by private motives. In defending Amarinus he may be said to have attacked Sulla, his object was to stamp out the still-burning embers of Sulla's cruelty, but not the less was he wedded to Sulla's general views as to the restoration of the authority of the Senate. In his early speeches, especially in that spoken against Verres, he denounces the corruption of the senatorial judges, but at that very period of his life he again and again expresses his own belief in the glory and majesty of the Senate. In accusing Verres, he accused the general corruption of Rome's provincial governors, and as they were always past consuls or past praetors, and had been the elite of the aristocracy, he may be said so far to have taken the part of a democrat. But he had done so only so far as he had found himself bound by a sense of duty to put a stop to corruption. The venality of the judges and the rapacity of governors had been fit objects for his eloquence, but I deny that he can be fairly charged with having tampered with democracy, because he had thus used his eloquence on behalf of the people. He was no doubt stirred by other political motives, less praiseworthy, though submitted to in accordance with the practice and the known usages of Rome. He had undertaken to speak for Catiline when Catiline was accused of corruption on his return from Africa, knowing that Catiline had been guilty. 
He did not do so, but the intention for our present purpose is the same as the doing. To have defended Catiline would have assisted him in his operations as a candidate for the consulship. Catiline was a bad subject for defence, as was Fonteus, whom he certainly did defend, and Catiline was a democrat. But Cicero, had he defended Catiline, would not have done so as holding out his hand to democracy. Cicero, when, in the Prolege Manilia, he for the first time addressed the people, certainly spoke in opposition to the wishes of the Senate in proposing that Pompey should have the command of the Mithridatic War, but his views were not democratic. It has been said that this was done because Pompey could help him to the consulship. To me it seems that he had already declared to himself that among leading men in Rome, Pompey was the one to whom the Republic would look with the most security as a bulwark, and that on that account he had resolved to bind himself to Pompey in some political marriage. Be that as it may, there was no tampering with democracy in the speech Prolege Manilia. Of all the extant orations made by him before his consulship, the attentive reader will sympathise the least with that of Fonteus. After his scathing onslaught on Verres for provincial plunder, he defended the plunder of the Gauls, and held up the suffering allies of Rome to ridicule as being hardly entitled to good government. This he did simply as an advocate, without political motive of any kind, in the days in which he was supposed to be currying favour with democracy, governed by private friendship, looking forward probably to some friendly office in return, as was customary. It was thus that afterward he defended Antony, his colleague in the consulship, whom he knew to have been a corrupt governor. Autronius had been a party to Catiline's conspiracy, and Autronius had been Cicero's schoolfellow. But Cicero, for some reserved reason with which we are not acquainted, refused to plead for Autronius. There is, I maintain, no ground for suggesting that Cicero had shown by his speeches before his consulship any party adherence. The declaration which he had made after his consulship, in the speech for Sulla, that up to the time of Catiline's first conspiracy, forensic duties had not allowed him to devote himself to party politics, is entitled to belief. We know, indeed, that it was so. As Quaestor, as Aedile, and as Praetor, he did not interfere in the political questions of Rome, except in demanding justice from judges and purity from governors. When he became consul, then he became a politician, and after that there was certainly no vacillation in his views. Critics say that he surrendered himself to Caesar when Caesar became master. We shall come to that hereafter, but the accusation with which I am dealing now is that which charges him with having abandoned the democratic memories of his youth as soon as he had enveloped himself with the consular purple. There had been no democratic promises, and there was no change when he became consul. In truth, Cicero's political convictions were the same from the beginning to the end of his career, with a consistency which is by no means usual in politicians, for though, before his consulship, he had not taken up politics as a business, he had entertained certain political views, as do all men who live in public. From the first to the last, we may best describe him, by the word we now have in use, as a conservative. The government of Rome had been an oligarchy for many years, though much had been done by the citizens to reduce the thraldom which an oligarchy is sure to exact. To that oligarchy Cicero was bound by all the convictions, by all the practices, and by all the prejudices of his life. When he speaks of a republic, 
He speaks of a people and of an empire governed by an oligarchy. He speaks of a power to be kept in the hands of a few, for the benefit of the few and of the many, if it might be, but at any rate in the hands of a few. That those few should be so select as to admit of no newcomers among them would probably have been a portion of his political creed had he not been himself a novus homo. As he was the first of his family to storm the barrier of the fortress, he had been forced to depend much on popular opinion, but not on that account had there been any dealings between him and democracy. That the empire should be governed according to the old oligarchical forms which had been in use for more than four centuries and had created the power of Rome, that was his political creed. That consuls, censors and senators might go on to the end of time with no diminution of their dignity, but with great increase of justice and honour and truth among them, that was his political aspiration. They had made Rome what it was, and he knew and could imagine nothing better. And odious as an oligarchy is seen to be under the strong light of experience to which prolonged ages has subjected it, the aspiration on his part was noble. He has been wrongly accused of deserting that democracy with which he had flirted in his youth. There had been no democracy in his youth, though there had existed such a condition in the time of the Gracchi. There was none in his youth and none in his age. That which has been wrongly called democracy was conspiracy, not a conspiracy of democrats such as led to our commonwealth, or to the American independence, or to the French revolution, but conspiracy of a few nobles for the better assurance of the plunder and the power and the high places of the empire. Of any tendency toward democracy, no man has been less justly accused than Cicero, unless it might be Caesar. To Caesar we must accord the merit of having seen that a continuation of the old oligarchical forms was impracticable. This Cicero did not see. He thought that the wounds inflicted by the degeneracy and profligacy of individuals were curable. It is attributed to Caesar that he conceived the grand idea of establishing general liberty under the sole dominion of one great and therefore beneficent ruler. I think he saw no farther than that he, by strategy, management and courage, might become this ruler, whether beneficent or the reverse. But here I think that it becomes the writer, whether he be historian, biographer, or fill whatever meaner position he may in literature, to declare that no beneficence can accompany such a form of government. For all temporary sleekness, for metropolitan comfort and fatness, the bill has to be paid sooner or later in ignorance, poverty, and oppression. With an oligarchy there will be other, perhaps graver, faults, but with an oligarchy there will be salt, although it be among a few. There will be a Cicero now and again, or at least a Cato. From the dead, stagnant level of personal despotism there can be no rising to life, till corruption paralyzes the hands of power, and the fabric falls by its own decay. Of this no proof can be found in the world's history so manifest as that taught by the Roman Empire. I think it is made clear by a study of Cicero's life and works, up to the period of his exile, that an adhesion to the old forms of the Roman government was his guiding principle. I am sure that they who follow me to the close of his career will acknowledge that after his exile he lived for this principle 
and that he died for it. Res publica, the republic, was the one word which to his ear contained a political charm. It was the shibboleth by which men were to be conjured into well-being. The word constitution is nearly as potent with us, but it is essential that the reader of Roman history and Roman biography should understand that the appellation had in it, for all Roman ears, a thoroughly conservative meaning. Among those who at Cicero's period dealt with politics in Rome, all of whom, no doubt, spoke of the Republic as the vessel of state which was to be defended by all persons, there were four classes. There were they who simply desired the plunder of the state, the Catilines, the Sullas of the day, and the Antonies, men such as Verres had been, and Fonteus and Autronius. The other three can best be typified each by one man. There was Caesar, who knew that the Republic was gone past all hope. There was Cato, the dogmatical fool Cato, as Mommsen calls him, perhaps with some lack of the historian's dignity, who was true to the Republic, who could not bend an inch, and was thus as detrimental to any hope of reconstruction as a Catiline or a Caesar. Cicero was of the fourth class, believing in the Republic, intent on saving it, imbued amid all his doubts with a conviction that if the optimates or boni, the leading men of the party, would be true to themselves, consuls, censors, and the senate would still suffice to rule the world, but prepared to give and take with those who were opposed to him. It was his idea that political integrity should keep its own hands clean, but should wink at much dirt in the world at large. Nothing, he saw, could be done by catonic rigour. We can see now that Ciceronic compromises were, and must have been, equally ineffective. The patient was past cure. But in seeking the truth as to Cicero, we have to perceive that amid all his doubts, frequently in despondency, sometimes overwhelmed by the misery and hopelessness of his condition, he did hold fast by this idea to the end. The frequent expressions made to Atticus in opposition to this belief are to be taken as the murmurs of his mind at the moment, as you shall hear a man swear that all is gone and see him tear his hair, and shall yet know that there is a deep fund of hope within his bosom. It was the ingratitude of his political friends, his boni and his optimates, of Pompey as their head, which tried him the sorest. But he was always forgiving them, forgiving Pompey as the head of them, because he knew that were he to be severed from them, then the political world must be closed to him altogether. Of Cicero's strength or Cicero's weakness, Pompey seems to have known nothing. He was no judge of men. Caesar measured him with a great approach to accuracy. Caesar knew him to be the best Roman of his day, one who, if he could be brought over to serve in Caesarian ranks, would be invaluable, because of his honesty, his eloquence, and his capability. But he knew him as one who must be silenced if he were not brought to serve on the Caesarian side. Such a man, however, might be silenced for a while, taught to perceive that his efforts were vain, and then brought into favour by further overtures and made of use. Personally, he was pleasant to Caesar, who had taste enough to know that he was a man worthy of all personal dignity. But Caesar was not, I think, quite accurate in his estimation, having allowed himself to believe at the last that Cicero's energy on behalf of the Republic had been quelled.
End of chapter 12, part 1